Well, thank you. I cannot say enough to um, Barry and Shirley and Paul for the invitation and for the hospitality, and yesterday to Alice, who drove us from Dublin to Belfast, and we waited in Belfast about an hour because of the accident, and then we got to drive through the countryside around uh, that area. I can't pronounce any of the towns, and if I said them, you wouldn't understand them, because I don't understand what you're saying when you pronounce those towns. It sure doesn't look like the words on the page. But we are extremely grateful to be with you. Uh, We were in uh, Ireland, and you're going to have to excuse me when I don't distinguish between the Republic and Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm an American, so help me. Uh, But we were here uh, in 2010, and uh, we were in Dublin, and I was speaking at Irish Bible Institute a great week that I got to talk about the gospel. And then we spent a week driving around Northern Ireland and then to Galway and the uh, Cliffs of Mower and Ring of Kerry. And it didn't have, it was a, every day was a sunny day. And we were told that that didn't happen in Ireland, uh, but it happened for us. So we got to see uh, some of your great sights at their best. Uh, but um, this, this week, uh, we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. But tonight, I want to sort of set the, the theme by looking at uh, a deeper gospel issue that gives rise to the kingdom. And one of the things that, uh, that I thought would set this for you is uh, my wife and I are bird watchers. And one of the things we like to do in the places we go is look for birds. And today I saw a chaffinch and a wagtail and uh, a few other birds that are not in the United States. Uh, But we are uh, avid bird uh, bird watchers. We don't go places to look at birds. We look at birds where we are. So we're not one of those uh, sort of binocular-carrying, book-slinging, people-pushing type uh, bird watchers. But... Uh, we, we are bird watchers, and you have some great birds here because of the migrations and because of the water. One time I was in a bird store, and it was a sort of posh bird store in our town, and I observed to the manager of the store that I love hummingbirds. Now, I don't think you have hummingbirds here, but it is one of the greatest creations in all of planet Earth, these little birds whose wings move at such a rapid pace, they have something like 3,000 heartbeats in a minute. Uh, So they only live three years, but uh, they enjoy every minute of it. Well, I told the manager of the the hummingbird store that that we, we had a hummingbird feeder one time and we didn't see any birds. And he said to me, where do you live? And so I described where we live in the village. He said, well, I have friends who live near you, and I can tell you there are hummingbirds all over your neighborhood. Then he said something very powerful. You just have to have eyes to see them. Once you see them, you will see them everywhere. They are small and fast and camouflaged, 
But once you have an eye to see them, you will see them. Indeed, eventually we bought a feeder. We put it up. We spotted a couple hummingbirds. And now Chris and I are capable of seeing hummingbirds anywhere. And we're often with our friends. And we see a hummingbird and they look around and say, where is it? Because you have to have eyes to see them in order to see them. Here, here is a point. There is a, if you're near a hummingbird, there is a hum. And you can hear it. People who don't have ears to hear the hum don't hear it. People who don't have eyes to see the bird don't see it. And we need to have a gift, an opportunity that gives us the ability to hear the hum of a hummingbird. Now, I'm going to use this as an analogy of God's recreative life, like the hummingbirds, is all around us. If we have the eyes to see God's recreative life in the world, and if we have ears to hear the hum of God in our world, it takes an act of faith. Sometimes in the world in which we live, to see God at work and to hear the hum of God's recreative life. It takes an act of faith, but once we commit ourselves to that faith, we begin to see the hum of God's recreative life everywhere we go. The birth of a child in a family, in our church community, in the last year or two, we've had Lots of little babies, two, two at a time, from the same mother. And this, this creates special joys and problems for the parents. And for people who like to watch it, we think it's fun. For those parents, it's a challenge. All around us, we are seeing the hum of life. Marilyn Robinson, one of America's new and great, well, she's not so new, but uh, she's fresh on the scene in the world of writing, in an essay called Freedom of Thought, sounded sort of like the Belfast writer C.S. Lewis when she once said, if we are to consider the heavens, how much more are we to consider the magnificent energies of consciousness that make whomever we pass on the street a far grander marvel than our galaxy? You have to have the hum of God's recreative life, to see in every human being you meet a grander marvel than the galaxy. We were today in downtown Colerain. We're from Chicago. We have a little bit different idea what downtown means. And the way you say Colerain doesn't quite work. It sounds like Korean to me. There's some, something going on there in the Irish lilt that uh, I don't have the capacity. But as we were sitting there and walking and having coffee, all these people in Coleraine were walking around busy, taking care of things. Each one of them is a creation of God, designed by God to reflect his glory. And we are to see in all these humans the hum of God's recreative life. Do we do that? Do we take the time to hear the hum of God in every human being we meet? 
Gordon Bowker, in his biography of the ever curmudgeonly and complaining George Orwell, captures something very insightful about biographies that I suspect any of us who reads biographies will witness to. He said, Biography begins at the moment of death. Biography is a means of resurrecting the dead. I think he's right. When you read a biography of someone who's dead, that person comes back to life for you. I'm reading right now a biography of John Calvin's Institutes. And John Calvin, uh, with whom I have not always been on friendly terms, John Calvin is coming to life for me through uh, this phenomenal book on the biography of his institutes. In the end of the school year, I wonder if parents perceive the end of the school year as death or resurrection. Is the beginning of the school year death or resurrection? What is it for students? What is it for home parents, homeschooling parents? What do they think of the end of the school year? Well, all I've done is sample a couple examples where I think if we have the mind of God, if we see God's recreative hum, or we hear God's recreative hum, we will see God at work in ways that we perhaps are ignoring. Are we attentive to the music of God in our world? Well, I would like to, uh, I'm going to put my Anglican hat on today and use text from four different sections of Scripture, but I want to begin by looking at the fundamental idea that the hum of life, the hum of God's recreative life, is heard loudest and clearest in the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. And I'd like to read to you just one verse from a line in the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, where he states what he thinks the gospel is. And he says this, Remember King Jesus, or Jesus Christ in most translations, but Christ means king. Remember King Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from David. And then he says, This is my gospel. For Paul, the gospel was to remember Jesus Christ, to announce that he had been raised from the dead, and that he was a descendant from Jesus. I mean, from David. Now think about this. How can he do the gospel in three lines like this, three short statements, and not mention the cross? Because the resurrection gives meaning to the cross. And sometimes our theologies and our understandings about kingdom and other, and other important topics are not sufficiently shaped by the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says. This is my gospel. I have been in context where I have been asked, what is the gospel? And I've quoted Paul in my own words to mask anyone who's memorized this verse and said, do you think that's the gospel? And I've had people say to me, no, that's not the gospel. 
The gospel is justification by faith, or the gospel is the crucifixion of Jesus. I said, well, I just quoted Paul. I have a good feeling that he knows what he's talking about. And that when he says this is the gospel, that's what it was. And he focused on one event in the life of Jesus, the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that the gospel is is about the life of Jesus Christ, who was crucified on the third day, according to scriptures, he was raised, and that he ascended. And so for Paul to tell the gospel is to announce the story of Jesus. It is to tell people that this person who was dead is now alive again. I love C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. But I love most especially the scene when the Pevensey children are saddened and depressed and overwhelmed because Aslan is dead on the stone table. But what is amazing about this story, because I remember reading it to my children when they were very young, is that they're overwhelmed like the Pevensey children with sadness because Aslan is on the stone table. But the stone table cracked and Aslan roamed Narnia again. And my little children were thrilled with the story. And I thought to myself, that's the gospel. To tell the story that someone who died has come back to life again. And this is the very core of what we as Christians believe. That death is not the last word. That the last word is life. That resurrection undoes crucifixion or gives meaning to crucifixion. That new life from God can turn death into a new life before God so that people can live forever. And the hum of God's recreative life is heard first of all in the resurrection. In fact, Nancy Mares, an American writer who wrote a book called Ordinary Times, said the crucifixion was merely a necessary pretext for the resurrection, which nullified it. I would differ with some of her words, but until we get to Easter, Good Friday lays like a tragedy. And suddenly on Easter, Good Friday becomes a comedy, a story of life and good news. Our gospel is the gospel of resurrection. So the hum, the deepest hum, the clearest hum of God's recreative life is the resurrection of Jesus. The hum I would like to suggest to you, secondly, the hum of God's recreative life should be heard and we should hear it in our daily provisions. There is a wonderful text in 1 Kings chapter 7, 17 that we sometimes neglect to read or because it's in the Old Testament, it's in that part of the Bible uh, we wish would go away. Sometime later, uh, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath, to Elijah, 
in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food for every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. What a beautiful story. And we read about this story and we kind of think, well, it's a little bit out of my, my, my realm of faith. Well, how about thinking about this, that every day that you and I put food on our table, and every day's food and every day's provision is a witness from God that He is providing life for us, that we should see in our pantries and on our refrigerators and in our freezers the recreative hum of God's life providing for us so that we might eat. Sometimes we are uh, less than grateful for what God is providing until we're put in a corner, and then in that corner we begin to trust. I was on an airplane ride the other day, and I was reading a book about Christianity, and I put the cover down because I didn't want to talk to anybody. You know how this is. So I put it in the pocket so that nobody could see what I was reading. Well, the lady next to me started to read a book, and because I'm snoopy about books, I looked at what she was reading. The plane hadn't taken off, so I googled the topic and found out it was by a Baptist pastor in Dallas, Texas. Well, I started reading my book, and she got snoopy, and she started talking to me. And before long, she was telling me her life story, and as I told you, I didn't want to be bothered. I was reading about the Bible and God and the kingdom of God and thinking about how to minister to others, except this wasn't the time to minister to others. She had, three she had three daughters, each in more than a little challenge, she told me as she began to talk. She told me about her youngest daughter, who had a child when she was way too young, when she was in high school, but that eventually her, this man that she was involved with had married her, and had abandoned her. She told me about another daughter who was now working on a farm that her, her husband, this second daughter's husband, had come out as homosexual and was abandoning her, and this young woman had just started a farm. 
Then she went back to the first daughter who had this father, uh, who had this husband, and this husband uh, was anything less than faithful and eventually abandoned her completely. And he was a drug addict, and now she had this child from her first, do- from her first marriage, or th- from the marriage. I'm getting confused here. Um, so this youngest daughter gets, has a child when she's very young. Her husband, they get married, then her husband abandons her, and he wanders off as a drug addict. Well, one day her oldest, uh, this mother is just telling me, and she's in tears about how how there's no way that she can provide for her two daughters. And I'm sitting here thinking about this text in 1 Kings 17. And she begins to cry, and she says, I just trust the Lord will provide. But she said, let me tell you about what happened. She said, my youngest daughter's son is now a 15-year-old getting ready to drive, and he comes in the living room the other day, and he says, I want to know where my father is. And so he Googled him, which is the instrument of trouble in her family, she thought. So her son discovers that there is a man by the same name from the same town who is now a veterinarian. And so the son says, can I call him to, her, to his mother and to his grandmother? And both of them said, well, you can. It's in your legal rights. And as a son, you could do this. But don't expect anything. So he calls the, the man, the veterinarian office, and the, the vet answers the phone. He expected to get somebody at a reception. And the, vet, the, the young man says, Hi, I'm your son. And the vet kind of pauses, so the kid explains it to him. And says, I have a patient in my office now. Can I call you back? He said, Yes, and here's the number. And he put down the phone, and he told his mom and his grandmother what had happened, and they said, don't expect him to call back. Thirty minutes later, he called back. And they struck up a relationship. And almost daily, they communicate via Twitter and Facebook and email, and once a week, they have long conversations, and this mother's tears are streaming down her, throat, down her face, and she says, God has answered my prayers. He's providing for my daughter and my grandson. You know, sometimes we have to have stories like this to realize that God is at work in providing. But this, this woman's story illustrated for me the hum of God's recreative life. God is providing for us. And as we eat this week, may we pause to give thanks to God for what he provides. In the lectionary for this day, the next text is from Psalm 146. And this is an important one to me uh, in the uh, American situation right now. And I suspect it is just as important to you right now. You don't have Donald Trump. (laughs) Why does everybody know about Donald Trump? We were in Greece, and people were asking us about Donald Trump. But you have other issues that we don't. Thank God. 
The hum of God's recreative life can be heard in the confession of God's people. It can be heard in the confession of God's people. Psalm 146, verse 3 reads, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. He, he, no, when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. I like that. The powers are going to die. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, and it is God who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Every two years, America convulses for two years over the next candidates. And an increasing number of American Christians are as obsessed as the media is, driven probably by the media, with who the next president of the United States will be. And this is, I, I'm all for presidents. They're, they're fine. Everybody's got to have a president, you know. Here's the problem. Increasingly, I'm finding Christians believe in what I call the eschatology of politics. And that is, if we get the next prince elected, or princess, our country will be saved. And this is a belief that if we go along with the media's and the narrative story, that the next leader of our nation will bring redemption. I'm 62. No president in the United States has brought us any redemption yet. Jesus is the king, not the presidents, not the prime ministers, not the voted officials. The king is Jesus, and he alone is on the throne. Our hope is not in the political process. It is in the redemption that comes to us through the cross that has been taken to the new level by the resurrection. Because of God's recreative life in the resurrection, we have hope for our world, hope in the cross and in the church, not in the political process. N.T. Wright, whom you can claim as Irish, if you would like, says, One day all creation will be rescued from slavery, from the corruption, decay, and death which deface its beauty, destroy its relationships, remove the sense of God's presence from our world, and make it a place of injustice, violence, and brutality. I love the emphasis. One day in God's new creation, this will all take place. But this new creation has invaded the present in the church, in Jesus Christ. And we participate in this new creation now as we trust in Christ and live in Him. We participate and should be hearing the hum of God's recreative life in the confession of the church, 
when we confess over and over that Jesus is Lord, that He is on the throne, and that we are His people. A fourth point I'd like to make is that the hum of God's recreative life can be heard in the story of conversions. I like the story of the Apostle Paul, who said, For you have heard, in Galatians 1, of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Conversion is the work of God. And when we see someone like Paul, who hated the church, who persecuted the church, who had a hand in putting Christians to death, when we see him become not God's enemy, but God's best friend, we are encouraged to see the hum of God's recreative life in the world. And whenever we see conversions, we should see the work of God in the world. Lauren Winner, I don't know if you know who she is, she's an American writer, is an example of a Jewish woman who became a Messianic Jew. Her best-selling memoir, with a great title, is called Girl Finds God. I recommend it to all of you. It tells of her conversion from non-observant liberal reform Judaism to very observant orthodox Judaism, then on to evangelical Christianity. Here is a defining moment in her conversion story, and I'll read to you. She said, while she was studying uh, for her Ph.D. at Columbia University in New York City, she said, My favorite spot at the cloisters was a room downstairs called the Treasury. In glass cases were small, fragile reliquaries and icons and prayer books. In one case was a tiny psalter and a book of hours. It lay open to a picture of Christ's arrest. I could barely read the Latin. Sometimes I would stand in front of that Psalter for an hour. I wanted to hold it in my hand. My boyfriend in college was Dove, an Orthodox Jew from Westchester County. Now, if you know what that means, that's as Jewish as you can get in New York City. Whom I had met through rabbi, a rabbi who thought all of this, her studying American Christianity, and having an interest in things Christian, was weird. He watched me watch the Book of Hours, and he watched me write endless papers about religious revivals in the South. He saw that I was reading a book about Southern fiction called, after Flannery O'Connor's memorable phrase, The Christ Haunted Landscape. And he worried. He said, Lauren, if a Jewish person converted to Catholicism, wouldn't you think it was strange if she then majored in Jewish studies at the college 
spent afternoons at the Jewish Museum and read, My name is Asher Lev, once a week. Well, look, I said to him, a girl can have an intellectual interest or two, can't she? At the time, I thought Dove was overacting. Now I think he could see something I could not see. He could hear the hum of God's life in her, and he could see Jesus slowly goading me toward him. Lauren becomes an Orthodox Christian. When people, she says, uh, and she had then uh, a disaffection with Orthodox Judaism, she said uh, there, it was a story of attraction to things Christian. When people want the quick answer, why did I become a Christian? What attracted you to Christianity? I tell them, the incarnation. Now to illustrate how she rearranged her complete life story because of the hum of God's recreative life, she says this, one of the things that happens when you convert is you feel family-less, even if your own family doesn't cast you out. And so should you convert again, you lose all sorts of things, not just your library and your vocabulary and your prayers, but also your family, all the people who made you their own, who made you yours. It's a good reason to only convert once if you can help it, because it is more than just your religion that you lose. If you read her story, you will experience the hum of God's recreative life because she has become someone completely different than she was, a major leading voice in American Christian theology and worship and conversion, Lauren Winter, because of looking at a glass case and seeing a book of prayer, the book of prayer that led her to ponder Christianity more seriously. When we baptize people in our churches, if you're Presbyterian and Anglican when they're young, if you're Baptist only when they're later, we'll agree to not talk about that at this moment. But when you see baptisms, you hear the hum of God's life. When we hear the stories of conversions or read biographies of Christians, we hear the, the hum of God's recreative life, a story of older life now comes into shape. When we witness to what God has done in us and tell our stories, or when we witness to what God is doing in us, we again express the hum of God's recreative life. So, I think if we listen, we can hear the hum of God's recreative life more than we perhaps are aware. I'd like to finish on this point, and that is, the hum of God's recreative life only comes from Jesus. The problem of our world, the problem of our life, as it were, is death. The solution, the problem the Bible has a solution for is death. Aging, sickness, and disease, bad knees. These are hums of death. They remind us of our mortality. On aging, I love what Joseph Epstein, an American Jewish writer, said when he saw a high school classmate after decades. He said, His skin was unwrinkled. 
His smile was unchanged. His hair was intact and combed in exactly the same way he had combed it 30-odd years ago. He was in every way the same, except he had grown much wider. Now, here's a great expression, for, particularly for people 50 and older. As if someone had inflated him or fooled with his horizontal knob. Now, for those of you under 50, TVs used to have knobs that you could adjust the picture vertically or horizontally so you could spread people out. This old guy had been, someone had fiddled with his horizontal knob. Two features of my story make me deeply conscious of death and aging. The first is I grew up in the kind of church that preached every Sunday or as often as possible, some kind of sermon that could be called Hellfire and Damnation. It was frightening for, for me as a young kid to go to church. It meant I was going to be frightened and scared about hell on a regular basis. I didn't need to be told when I was 12 that I was going to die. It had been pounded into me since I was four. And we had all kinds of crazy stories that were told to make people fear the fear of death. But probably more important to me on growing up with a sense of death, and therefore the great resolution that the gospel brings, is that I grew up next to a cemetery. Our neighborhood played in the cemetery. That's where we played. We were told to stay away from funerals. I learned to play golf in my cemetery. (laughs) And I kid you not, I would take a dozen golf balls over and I would hit them down the rows. And it's tighter than any fairway that anybody ever invented. Some 20 years later, I was walking through that cemetery and I found one of my golf balls. (laughs) So, I grew up surrounded by death. Death was all around me. I'm grateful for a life where death was a reminder. Either we run from death or we face death. Jesus faced death. If we face death in faith in light of the resurrection, we see through death into new life, into new creation, and into the hum of God's life in the world. It is in Jesus that we see the resurrection beginning to take place. And in Luke chapter 7, we read this amazing story. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. 
Now here's the cool part. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And all the people who were there were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea. They call Jesus here. Notice this. is When Jesus performs the miracle, nobody cares about the boy. I love this. They're looking at Jesus. They're going, Woo! This guy's got it. What did he do? He's a prophet. But even more than that, God has dwelt among his people. In this resurrection scene, we hear the ultimate hum of God's life. We begin with the resurrection of Jesus that hasn't even happened, but because the resurrection is going to happen in Jesus' life, he brings the powers of the resurrection back into life into this world so that this young man can experience the new heavens and the new earth before it occurs. And you and I, we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and even now we can begin to experience the new creation life if we trust in God and learn to see the hum of God's life with us. In Jesus, God is with us. If Jesus is in us, God's life is in us. If God's life is in us, resurrection power has been unleashed in each of us to live the life that God has called us to live. And in living that life, we can begin to detect the hum of God's life all around us. I'd like you to pray with me. Father, for your grace, we are thankful, and especially tonight for the grace of the resurrection of Jesus and the new life that he has unleashed in our world. That the powers of this age are not those who rule, that your Son does. That the provisions that we have are tokens of your grace and signs of recreative life. And that even in the signs of aging, we see the signs of life and the hum of resurrection. Give us grace to see through our world into the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.